Did you ever wonder what are the emotional intelligence secrets that FBI hostage negotiators use to get their way? And whether or not they would do you any good in your business or personal negotiations? So after all, if there's a bank robbery with hostages, which I have negotiated, and there's four hostages, does the hostage negotiator say, well, I'll tell you what, why don't we meet in the middle and we'll call it a day? <laughs> you really can't compromise when you're a hostage negotiator, and that's, that's the way that I learn negotiation. So I'll, I'll take you through a little bit of how I got to learn it and how I began to apply it in my business and professional life. And it really started on a night in late winter in New York City. Well, after dark, I left the, the FBI office, 26 Federal Plaza, and fought my way through traffic to get to a suicide hotline. I was volunteering on the suicide hotline because I'd been told that that was the best way to become a hostage negotiator, the best experience. And as a side note, I will tell you, it's, a, it's the best way to learn how to really listen to people on an emotional intelligence perspective. So I got to the hotline that night, and I picked up the phone, and I answered the phone, and my uh, hotline voice, hello, this is Helpline, which was the, came to be known as the late night FM DJ voice. <laughs> which now I refer to as the late night FBI DJ voice. But the voice on the other end of the phone just blurted out. He says, I, I, need, I need your help. I need your help. I got to put a lid on this day. I got to bring a lid to this day. And I listened to him and I, and I sensed that he was frantic. So that's exactly what I said. I said, you sound frantic. And immediately I could, I could feel a change in his tone of voice. And his voice came down. I felt strength come into his voice. And he started to talk to me. And he began to tell me uh, his issue was that he was battling the disease of paranoia. And he was going to go on a car trip the next day with his family. And in, he knew that on that car trip, because of his paranoia, he would get completely wound up and, and overcome with the paranoia. So since it was going to happen the next day, that night he was overcome with paranoia, thinking about the paranoia for the next day. And it completely wrapped himself up and needed to put a lid on the day. So as we began to talk, uh, he began to tell me also about how much his family was helping him. And I used something that I'd, someone else had once said to me, and I remember how strong it was because I was explaining to a colleague of mine how involved my family was and how supportive they were. And at that time, my colleague said to me, it sounds like your family's really close. And when he said that to me, I remember how good it felt and how it just drew together everything that I was feeling and how I felt myself strengthened when he said that. So I said to this, the same thing to this man on the phone. I said, it sounds like your family's really close. And he says, yeah, we are. And so then he began and he continued to talk and he talked and he began to tell me all the things that he was doing in order to battle the paranoia. And I was, I was very impressed with it. He sounded like a very determined man to me. So I said to him, you sound really determined. And he said, he said, you know, I am determined. He said, you know, I'm going to go on that car trip tomorrow and I'm going to be fine. Thanks for everything you did for me. And he hung up. <laughs> now I said three things to him. 
just three simple things. And I didn't know it at the time. And I was, was explaining to a friend of mine at brunch just the other day. He was telling me he used to write for Hollywood. And he said, you know, what you're saying about what you do makes all the sense in the world. I never would have guessed what you were doing. But once you explain it, it makes all the sense in the world. It's like a great Hollywood ending. You have no idea what's coming at the end of a, of a movie. But when it happens, it makes sense. And that's what hostage negotiators do. And we do now do in business. We take things that you all know about. But we combine them in ways that make them incredibly powerful that no one ever sees. With sales, especially with things like this, how much of this is logical versus emotional? Uh, I got to tell you something. Uh, everything is emotional. Uh, I, can, I, can, I, can lay out the, I can lay out the brain science right now and explain, explain at length whether neuroscience supports the fact that we do not have a logical thought in our head because we tell ourselves that. But n the neuroscience tells us uh, unequivocally or unequivocally, I always have trouble with that word, but I love it. <laughs> you know, I, I can't pronounce the words I want to use. But you know what they mean. That's what's important. I, 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 know, I know when I see it. Um, every thought that we have in our head, the neuroscientists are not certain whether thoughts start in the emotional side of, of our brain, uh, which is known as the limbic system, or simply go through the limbic system. But we do not possess a thought that our emotional apparatus, our limbic system, is not intertwined in. Neuroscience, which means we don't have a thought that lacks emotion. We don't make a decision without emotion. And, and actually, interestingly enough, further on, They've shown that if you pull emotions out of our decision-making process, we actually can't make a decision. We can follow directions. If this happens, do that. But we can't make decisions because we can't weigh things out because we weigh things out based on what we care about. So every decision every salesperson is trying to get somebody to make is, in fact, a decision that has emotion interwoven with it. Interesting. So when it comes to things like uh, objective thinking per se, when you're trying to take a third party or a third, yeah, third person view or removing as much emotion as possible from it to simply look at facts rather than letting emotion getting involved in things. And I like to think of that as objective or logical thinking, right? How much does logic, I mean, I, I understand what you just said with the emotion being part of everything, but how much does logic play into a, a sale or decision-making process with someone. I mean, there's people that are buy off of emotion, just like right like that. And then there's a lot, a lot more like the accounting type people, I like to call them, that are very logical, very numbers oriented. How, how much does that play into actually getting someone to commit to and follow through on a deal? Or is it well, really emotional? Well, what is their logic to start with? So, yeah, everybody thinks they have a logical process, but at some point in time, you have to uh, evaluate, you know, give a value to the facts. You know, what matters here? What's important? Start putting valuations on things. Value is based on what we care about. So, you know, there's, there's our value issues are going to start with how we weigh things out emotionally. And then, then the mind bender, then, then the, and this is what we refer to in the book as bending reality. Loss, every, if you're a human being, and so this only applies to human beings, 
lost things lost things twice as much as an equivalent gain. That's from Prospect Theory. Mm. Danny Kahneman wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, won the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics in 2002 because this is a fact of human life. What does that mean? $5, when I pay for it, I got to get $10 in return in value, at least, or I'm not going to make the deal. Hmm. If you're offering me something that gives me a 20% rate of return on my investment, that's inadequate. I need a 100% rate of return on my investment. So you're pitching gain to me based on neutral third-party valuations of what a dollar is worth and what the return on investment is. No matter how much you lay that out, I'm not gonna weigh it that way because I'm always gonna overestimate the value of the dollars that I've spent, mm. and I'm always gonna underestimate mm. the value that I've received. And, and, and the value you received in a dollar, I mean, in, in terms of like value, doesn't necessarily have to be just dollars back, right? I mean, it's whatever we perceive as value back, correct? Right. Now, and then we got to we got to start. I got to start getting into your head to find out what you perceive as value. Yeah. I'm a little nervous about asking this question to law enforcement professionals because it's more on the emotional side. But okay. I'm headed to a, a pretty aggressive custody negotiation, okay. and um, so there's 17 years of hurt feelings on this, and so. Um, I'm really worried about having an emotional reaction and I'm trying to figure out how to get out of my head to mirror and label for that person um, and not get overwhelmed in that situation. And I wondered, I'm sure you don't start to cry in hostage negotiation situations, but I'm just wondering if you have any advice for that. Yeah, sure. And I'd be happy happy to add in some thoughts. And then what I'm actually going to do is, is throw it to a real hostage negotiator. I'm going okay. to ask for Troy's thoughts on this. Cause for those of you who don't know, I was te never technically in law enforcement, okay. but I'm blessed to work with many, many, uh, uh legendary law enforcement professionals and, and they're on the call with us and Troy's one of them. And so he runs uh, a couple classes for us. One is a, we call caviar, which is all about mindset going in and, and understanding what your triggers are a little bit and how to combat those. So I'll add a thought and then Troy, I'll throw it to you. My first thought is simply gonna be mental preparation, know that you are gonna get triggered. Like no matter how hard I try, something's gonna happen that's gonna trigger me here. And if, if you're at least mentally prepared for knowing the punch is coming, you'll be that much more ready for it when it does come. And then secondarily, um, focusing on simply putting all your focus on the skills, which is not an easy thing to do, especially in a highly emotional state. It is not easy to do because we get so caught up in like, that's wrong, I need to tell you why it's wrong and I need to correct you, right? It's hard to fight that. But if we can switch mentally to just like, what skill do I need to drop in here to diffuse this? What skill do I need to drop in? Because, right, they got a lot of adrenaline running through their system right now, and I need to drop in dopamine because I need them positive and I got to get rid of this adrenaline stuff. 
what's the skill that I can use to actually trigger dopamine that at least will, will um, damper down the thoughts of like, you idiot, how could you, I can't believe you son of a, right? And, and at least if we're focused on the skills. So those, those are the two things I would add quickly. Troy, what, what else would you add to this? Because this, this definitely falls in your wheelhouse of expertise. You definitely want to stay curious. If you're staying curious and asking, why are they saying these things? Why are they behaving this way? It's going to take away the emotional side of it for you mostly, where you're, you're searching for answers for them. What, what make them say that? What, what is making them behave that way? And for yourself, you want to get with a trusted colleague and vent before you go into the room or before you, before you actually go on the call or sit down with, across from that individual. You want to vent about all the things that you think are going to happen or going to come up in that room that's going to be an issue but you wanna find somebody that's gonna be positive when they talk to you, because if you go in there and they've already fed you full of negative stuff, you're gonna have a negative mindset going in. You wanna have a positive mindset. And one of the things that Brandon said that is so important, he, when he was talking about the person getting angry or getting upset, they can only do it for 45 seconds to a minute. If you can hold on for that ride, you're gonna be okay they wear themselves out. They don't realize how much stress and how fatiguing it becomes for them. So when they do that, the longer you can sustain your, your calm, you want to wear them down. And they're finally going to just throw their hands up and like, Shh. but if you get angry and they get angry, they talk about the amygdala, you're going to have two dumb people in the room and you can't, and it don't work when you have that. All right, guys, we're going to talk about inflection today, tonality. Now, I realize if you're thinking right now, and you know, that's just really mundane stuff, but the mastery level, the black belt skill level here is in a slight, subtle touch that makes all the difference in the world. And it's at the end of a statement that you really want to land well, where it inflects up, almost as if it was a question. That makes sure that something that's really important that you have to land He's going to land without causing them to get their guard up. I'll give you an example. We're in a training session and we're telling people that labeling a negative in advance doesn't plant a negative. Now, this scares a lot of people. So we tell them about it theoretically and they say, okay, you know, it kind of goes sort of past them. But then when we talk about actually doing it, it scares them. So we go through it. We say, all right, we want you to label these negatives in advance. They go, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. That'll, that'll plan a negative. Now, we told them earlier that it doesn't, and I've got to remind them of that, but gently. Now, I could say, so when we told you earlier that labeling a negative in advance doesn't plant it, you thought we were wrong. Now, my tone of voice inflecting down is kind of harsh, and there's a pretty good chance that saying it like that may cause it to land hard and cause their guard to be up. And I don't need the guard to be up. So instead, I need to say it. So when we told you before that labeling a negative in advance doesn't plant a negative, you thought we were wrong? Now saying it like that the second time makes sure it lands. I could say you thought I was wrong, as if I think you're wrong. Or can say, you thought I was wrong? 
as if I'm genuinely questioning. I said it the second way, and the person we were teaching said, oh, no, I guess not. And that's exactly the way I needed it to land. So tonality at the end ensures that what you have to have land will land the way you want it to so that they think about it. It triggers the thought pattern that you want it to think and it doesn't cause their guard to come up. Inflecting up at the end is a master negotiator move and mastery of tonality. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair, you get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. Four most emotional words in negotiation. And they're emotional because they're all subjective. It's all relative, it all depends. Leverage changes depending on what side of the table you're on. If I were to take uh, Brooks, a family member of Brooke, if I were to take them hostage and I were to call Brooke and I said, if you ever want to see them again, you're going to pay me $10 million. If you ever want to see this person again, who's got the leverage in that conversation? Do I have the leverage? Does Brooke have the leverage? Where, is, where does the leverage lie? Depends whose side you're looking at it from. Okay, look he at wants it the money. Look at it from Brooke's side. Or look at it from my side. Do I have leverage? Do I have more leverage than Brooke? Assuming Brooke actually cares about that person. Yeah, let's, just, let's assume that this is a close love boom. Brooke cares. So she's not gonna, this person is not expendable to Brooke. What... Who's got the leverage? Hmm. I do. You do. Yeah. What makes you say that? You have something she wants. I have something she wants. So if you carry that to its logical conclusion, if I've got the leverage, Brooke has none. But she has what you want too. She has the money that you want without uh -huh. the money. Okay, so, so, so what are you saying? She's got leverage? You both have leverage over each other. It's just who can take advantage of that and recognize how to to, to leverage that leverage. All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you go a little bit deeper than that. How in God's name does Brooke have leverage in this case? Because if she doesn't wanna pay or she can't pay for whatever reason, then well, your leverage kind of goes down or you're what you're looking for uh, from from her side is gone you're in the ballpark you you're you're right there well you do this to get money right that's her leverage she has money you want money exactly so take it out of the realm of kidnapping right let's say this is a business transaction because that's what a kidnapping is and imagine in your business you had one customer on the planet as a business, how much leverage would you have if you had one customer on the planet? Next to none. You wouldn't have any. And so from Brooke's perspective, go back to the kidnapping, there is one person on the planet that would pay $10 million for Brooke's relative 
and that's Brooke. There's nobody else. There are no other customers for Brooke's relative. And so going back to what we said earlier, it depends on what side of the table you are on. In that specific instance, Brooke has leverage because she's the only buyer for the product that you that the kidnapper is providing. Value. What you value is probably going to differ from what the counterpart values. You should always be looking for high value trades. That that's the high value trade are the two words that we use to replace the word compromise. Compromise doesn't make a lot of sense. What do they value? What do you value? Price. Price, you, price will make you do stupid things. You hear the price you want, you go crazy. You love it. But price is only one term. But it's, it's an emotional term because if we hear the price we want, we think we've done our job. If we don't hear the price we want, we're worried about paying too much. We're worrying about what we're going to look like back at our company with our peers when, when they when they hear the price that was given. So price is very seductive, but I want to tell you that it's only a term. It's only one term. Carl Icahn would negotiate with people and companies and agree to the most outrageous pricing because he knew that he was going to kill them on terms. That was his thing. Given to the pricing, they get so excited and the terms were just freaking unwieldy and wound up putting more money back in his pocket. But because the price was what was after, was so seductive, they failed to see that. And so just be very careful when you hear the price that you want. A price is a yes. And a yes without a how is worthless. So when you hear the price that you want, you guys come to an agreement on price, your job is not done. Your job is not to get so excited that you actually shut down and start looking at the implementation process. Go back to that scenario we talked about earlier with the guy and the, the building in the historic part of town and the price that he thought he was going to get that building for excited him so much that he failed to realize that he could have capitalized on other properties that were also for sale. And then fairness. We're going to talk about the fairness accusations audit next session. And I'm going to give you a list of accusations audits that are go-tos, but the fairness accusations audit is, is the one that you really cannot do without. You and I both know that when you talk about fair, fairness, unfair, unfairness, people use those concepts to manipulate you because of their emotional potency. If I were to tell Christopher at the beginning of the conversation, look, Chris, before we get into this conversation, I want you to know I only want what's fair. If you hear that from your counterpart prior to you jumping into the meat of the conversation, 
get ready because at the first opportunity, they're going to try to slit your throat. People will throw that out because they know that it makes people uncomfortable when they are labeled as being unfair. So from that point on, if, if Chris and I are engaged in conversation and he doesn't agree with anything that I say, what specter is now hanging over him? That specter being unfair. When somebody labels you as being unfair, that is an attack on your character. It's an attack on your integrity. And attacks in both of those places make us uncomfortable. And the response is to um, relieve that discomfort by acquiescing to whatever the counterpart says. Just so you can remove that label of unfairness from you. And what happens is you wind up capitulating where you shouldn't, compromising where you shouldn't, giving away things that you shouldn't, all in the name of being viewed as fair again. So to mitigate that, Christopher is going to say to me, before we even get started, listen, Derek, at any point during this conversation, you think I'm being unfair, I want you to stop me. And we're going to rewind that conversation back to where the unfairness began and we'll pick it up from there. You're taking authority and permission away from me from using that against you in the course of the conversation going forward. How does someone, if they um, want to, what's the first step? Because I'm, everyone listening, I've, I've gone through your stuff, it's amazing. Um, and I use it in my stuff. I, I integrated some of your stuff into my stuff and because that's what I do. And you know, it's, it's, I think a lot of it overlaps, but it's just gonna clarify my thinking on things. So how does, what's the first thing that, if someone wants to start really studying and learning your stuff, what's the first step to doing that? What's the first book they should read or first, program or from sure some free stuff you give it what's the first way they should start really getting your stuff integrated into their own business model well you, you, uh, or let's start with the assumption that they've either read my book or they've read your book right the very next thing to do to integrate it is start trying it out in low stakes conversations like if, if you want to learn a straight line method you are not going to drop that in for the first time when you got a hundred million dollars on the table Right. You need to go drop it in when you're at Starbucks or when right, you're exactly. with your Lyft driver. Somebody where you're not so scared of making a mistake. So we, you know, we coach people. I mean, we, we got. I we say call, take these three steps. Call up your utility company. What's the worst that could happen? Your bill's going to be exactly the same next month. And actually, the worst that's going to happen is you're going to get you're going to get some practice. You're going to be able to think about your tone of voice. You're going to be able to think about where it went good, where it went bad. I mean, start trying the stuff out in all of your low stakes conversations. Find out what works. Find out what you're struggling with. Then when you're in a big deal, now you can try it because you got a comfort level with some of it. Where would they actually find your stuff? Is it, do you, is it on your website? Is it on your, is it um, like, how do they, like if they want to start studying your stuff, is there a course that you sell on top of your book? Is there like a learning product that you have? Uh, where, where would someone get that? And you know, what's the best one to buy first? Blackswanltd.com is the website. B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. Now the first move is to sign up for a newsletter because it's free. And it's actionable stuff. You explore the website. We got a bunch of free stuff. We got a bunch of expensive stuff. Like me, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Familiar with the free stuff. The expensive stuff is going to be a waste of your money. 
we got we got a ton of free stuff out there that you can make a big difference in your life right away and 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 just like you i mean you, you i know you're trying to help people get their feet under them and then we'll teach you to run after we've got you walking really well and that's exactly what our approach is to of the one paid product you have what's the one you're most proud of that you think is the best one of all that you've developed. You would say, if anyone wants to buy something from me, I recommend, this is the one I recommend. They read the free stuff. They want to buy something for us. What's the best, what's your like go-to paid product? We actually just started doing it. Our skills are called the negotiation nine, nine, nine basic skills. We now have a short, concise, affordable, fast, sig- clear dive on what those nine skills are it's only a 90 minute training session we found that we were putting more clarity in that than was really in the book or anywhere else and people are eating that up and it's only 90 minutes of your time and a price point relatively speaking is lower than a price point for other stuff because it's only 90 minutes sure so the accusation thought it is amazing because it gives you the freedom to do whatever it is that you needed to do or to ask or address whatever it is that you came in needing to ask or address. And so if you're concerned that, um, that this person already thinks that you're too assertive, right, already kind of has that preconceived notion about you, um, then you can just simply say, you're going to think that what I'm about to ask you is, is really assertive. You might say, um, you're going to feel really overwhelmed by what I'm about to ask you. Um, you might say if, if you're concerned that they're being, that you think that you're too emotional, that they think that you're too emotional. Um, you might say, you're probably going to think that I'm bringing emotion into this. Um, and so it helps if that person, you can tell that person already thinks that about you by addressing that dynamic, you're able to diffuse it. Um, there's a question in the chat that asked, well, what if, you know, what if this, that person didn't already think that, is this going to make it worse? Um, Sandy, yeah, I, I kind of want to hand that to you because I know you have a lot to say. <laughs> um, you can't plant a negative, okay? If they don't feel that way, they don't feel that way. You're not going to suddenly put that thought in their head, okay? Um, and even if you do, you're mitigating at the same time. So it's, it's not going to make it happen if it's not already there. So even if they're not thinking that whatever you're saying is going to be too expensive and you're saying, well, you're going to think this is so expensive. And they're like, well, I mean, they might be thinking money's no object. All they're going to do is just say, well, no, not really. And just go on with the next thing. You're not going to plant that negative. Okay. How you plant a negative is by saying, I don't want you to think I'm being picky but I really don't like that shade of blue. Okay. You just, you, you threw it out there. And what's the first thing they're going to think when they hear, I don't want you to think I'm being picky. They're going to think, Oh, you're being picky. You know, I don't want you to be mad at me for doing this. So they know that whatever you're saying right now is going to make them mad. Okay. That's the wrong way to do it. So you, you, you don't want to do that's, that's basically, um, that's the denial. You want to avoid the denial. You want to just point out the negative. You don't want to try and justify it or explain it. So just say, yeah, you, you may think I'm being picky. I don't like that shade of blue. 
instead of saying, I don't want you to think I'm being picky because that's telling them that they're going to be that way. Okay. You're not, you, that's not mitigating anything. That's actually raising it. So you want to be very careful that you word this correctly, but you cannot introduce the negative. If it's not already there, you're not going to make it be there because you're saying it. So don't be afraid of that. Okay. Um, Absolutely. Do you have more to say about that preconceived notions? Um, no, just that. Um, yeah, that essentially a lot of times we come into these situations kind of fearing like, well, that person already thinks this about me. How can I possibly talk to them about it? Or this person already believes that this isn't going to work. There's no convincing them. Um, it is shocking the power of what an accusations audit can do. It demonstrates self-awareness. It demonstrates, um, it demonstrates concern and care for the other side. Because essentially, when you are giving the accusations audit properly, the way Sandy was talking about, um, then what you're saying, in essence, is I understand your experience right now. And I understand that I'm making this hard for you in some way. Um, and so even if, you know, you're not really, because you're probably not being too emotional, <laughs> or you're probably not being too assertive, um that doesn't really matter because it's that person's experience and so then we're able to subvert those preconceived notions move on and continue to make a deal this quote comes from salavi and mayer who together wrote a dissertation on emotional intelligence for their phd back in 1990 um, generating emotion so as to assist thought the, the way that I would clear that up is generating positive emotions to assist thought because those are the only emotions that do assist with your ability to process. And to your specific question, do, more, do some people have a harder time doing that? And the answer is yes, um, because we've been conditioned that negotiation is a, a, comp a competitive exercise. We know that both parties are better off if both parties cooperate. But the dilemma is we don't know what the mindset of the, is the other side. So we default to the worst. That's what our brain does. And the worst is being competitive. So you go in wanting to compete with somebody who you believe is going to be competing with you and you both wind up with worse outcomes. It's all in your ability to change your mindset. The harder it is for you to change your mindset and understand that it's not about you, the harder it is going to be for you to generate those positive emotions that are going to assist the way you process things. And so, yes, some people have a more difficult time than others. Who are those people? For example, the assertives have a harder time doing it. The assertives are there to get things done, period. And they don't have a lot of time to think about accessing or or generating appropriate emotions to assist in thought. They've got a game plan. They know where they want to go. So it's harder for the assertive because anything that comes outside of their game plan is viewed largely as a failure for that. And so for the assertives, it, it takes a little bit more effort. What is driving them? If you demonstrate it, they're more likely to sign, they're more likely to perform, they're more likely to refer you. Your demonstration of tactical empathy will make a determination whether they wanna work with you again. Go back to what Kent talked about earlier. If he had been better at tactical empathy, 
their anger level with him in the moment would have come down sooner, even if they didn't make the agreement. Because of his demonstration of tactical empathy, they will make a decision that they want to work with them again or with him again. When people think about emotions, they automatically think, you know, soppy, you know, sad little negative thoughts about emotions. When you're talking about labeling your counterpart in the middle of a business meeting, you want to look more for those dynamics. Okay. Instead of saying, it seems like you're angry. You can say, um, it seems like you're really upset that, uh, that other provider promised you this and then didn't give it to you. So then you're pretty much labeling that emotion, but you're also giving them a little bit deeper. You're upset and this is why you're upset kind of thing. Okay. So you're not just saying, well, you seem really sad about this. You're saying, well, you seem really upset that this provider didn't give you what they were supposed to give you. It's a touchy subject with some people. Some people are more comfortable talking about emotions and dealing with emotions and addressing feelings. Other people are not. So when you put your label out there, you kind of have to judge the room a little bit and see the kind of person that you're dealing with. It might not be somebody that you can just pin a, wow, you seem aggravated. You seem frustrated. You might just say, you know, it, it might, it seems like it makes you pretty angry when, when the provider doesn't give you what they're supposed to give you. It's less about pointing out the emotion and more about pointing out the why behind the emotion, which is where we want you to go anyway, because just labeling the emotion is very surface. Getting the why behind it also is a deeper way to label it. So in dealing with a client that's just generally angry, we've had multiple snags. Every time we have a conversation, it results in a minor explosion, uh, almost to the point to where you hesitate to even call and talk to him. Is it okay to just go for the jugular and say, you seem really angry about this and just open the floodgate? Is that too aggressive or do you just just go for it? Um, all right, so I'm, I need some clarification. So I'm going to ask you, you said that you're going to go for the jugular and be aggressive. What about, it seems like you're angry, screams aggression to you? Well, the aggression comes with, uh, for instance, we may, I may call and have a conversation with a possible delay or something like that. And it, it results in, uh, it results in an angered response that seems to be unfocused. And before long, it's, well, is the other agent even doing his job and, and just trying to recenter the conversation back to, to get to something we can actually diffuse instead of these just random uh, shots fired? Do, right. we, uh, do I go for the jugular and try and see what, what the, the brightest fire is? Right. Okay. So I get you. So you, instead of uh, going for the jugular, you're talking about going at the emotion directly, not beating around yeah. the bush. Yeah, And the answer to that is always going to be yes. Yes, okay. yes, 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 yes. Okay. Look, if they explode at you, if they're screaming at you in a, in a difficult conversation, one of three things is occurring. You got to figure out which one it is. The first one is they're under tremendous pressure on their side from somewhere. The second thing is you're not listening. They're telling you something consciously or subconsciously, and you're not picking it up. The third reason is they're trying to manipulate you. Either way, you got to figure out which one it is. And the only way to do that is to go directly at it. So excuse my French, but if 
I'm going off at you in an elevated tone. And this is, you know, this is not the first time I've done it. And you say to me, seems like you're, you're angry. I'm probably going to go off on you more yeah. because it's abundantly clear that I'm angry. It, it, so, it, it, you know, it seems like this really did a lot to piss you off. Sorry for my language, but hitting it directly on it. You're going to, you're probably so angry with me right now. You want to smack me in the face with a brick. Okay. Hit it directly because if you dance it around it, they'll think that you're, you're ignorant or if you ignore it, it's going to come back and bite you later in the conversation. But if this guy or woman, if this is happening to you multiple times by the same person, you're missing something. There's, okay. there's something going on with them that you need to figure out what it is or else you're going to stay in this cycle. You're stupid. Your whole being and the way you are. What happens when you get attacked? Just like I said, there's the amygdala activation. Once that amygdala activate, activates, it's a little almond in the frontal part of your brain. It's not that big, but it has a big effect on you. You start shutting down your brain. You can't think straight. We've all been there. As soon as we get attacked, we're fighting it. All of a sudden, our, we get tunnel vision. It gets narrow. We're not hearing everything the other person's saying. We're getting frustrated. We want to start resorting back to what we know, which is to attack back or to cower and give in. What happens when we attack and amygdala activation happens? That's his fight. We're gonna get into a fight mode. We're gonna be arguing back and forth and guess what? We're making the other person dumber and they're making us dumber. If neither one of us are thinking clearly, we're not gonna have a good conversation. We're going to be struggling and we're not going to get anywhere. We're wasting each other's time. How many times have you guys been in an argument and nothing got resolved? Because both of y'all are fighting and nobody's listening to the other side. I hear what they have to say because you've attacked me. So I'm, my, my response is I'm going to attack back. Or you might consider flight. Your next step is I'm going to get out of that situation as fast as I can. I'm going to run. I'm going to leave the conversation. I'm going to figure out a way to get out of that room. When you do that, if you fight or if you flee, what have you accomplished? At some point in time, we talk about the elephant in the room and you guys have heard it. It's always going to be there. It's still there. You're going to have to have that tough conversation again at some point. And the more you flee or fight, you're never going to get it accomplished. Just in regards to the amygdala, I think a lot of us are aware of this already. But just to add some clarity, right? The amygdala is a part of the brain that's often referred to as the reptilian brain or the caveman brain, hence the pictures there. And something I've always found, I'm no, I'm no neuroscientist, right? So uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily stating this as fact. My understanding of the evolution of the human brain the amygdala is so ingrained in what we do, it's actually the only part of the brain that has not evolved since caveman times. 
The amygdalas that we have now that exist in our brain are built exactly the same way they were millions and millions of years ago when we were hunter-gatherers running around in loincloths. And it's the only part of the human brain that hasn't actually grown and developed and changed over time. And so what, 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 why does that matter for us? Well, it's so, it's such a, a, a nucleus, as it were, to how we process data that we have to be acutely focused on how it operates in order to control it. Because this default mechanism of fight, flight, or make friends, or I want to defend myself, or you know, all the reasons that, that Troy just mentioned in regards to why people get mad, because uh, you know, someone's not listening to them, or they're under pressure, or simply just because they can, those are all directly related to amygdala activation. You don't feel listened to, you get upset, your amygdala cuts on, you start to defend yourself by fight or flight, and you're no longer collaborative, right? If you're under pressure, you're feeling a lot of heat from somewhere else in your environment, and then your, your amygdala is already on every time you interact with someone because of everything that you're carrying around with you, the proverbial chip on the shoulder, as it were. And then just because they can, you know, for those, I know some of you are part of our um, bargaining course that started yesterday. We were talking about the difference between influence and manipulation during that class yesterday. And just because someone can, that is a manipulative technique. What they've learned through practice is if they can stay angry and push people to a limit, then they can, in fact, manipulate their decision making which again is all about the amygdala as long as i show anger as long as i show that i'm being defensive or being attacking that i'm going to trigger their amygdala they're not going to be thinking clearly and then they'll probably give me what i want because they're off kilter and so this amygdala thing right we kind of it's, it's easy to breeze through it but being acutely aware of how it functions and how it actually distracts us from optimum performance is really the first step to being an optimum performer, being in that 1%, right? As the old, the old cliche, uh, the first step to solving any problem is, is first identifying the problem. And so that's some of what we're doing here. And that ties right into, if we accept that these problems are gonna happen, right? And Troy talks a lot about this in the caviar class, right? The, the idea of acceptance. If we accept that these things are going to happen to us, as opposed to hope that it doesn't happen, right? We all, that's, that's kind of a natural human nature. I hope that I don't get attacked. I hope that I don't have to deal with this, right? We all know if never split the difference, hope is not a strategy. But when we start to accept, it makes us much more quick to stay cognitively flexible in the moment. How is principally focused on implementation, what is principally focused on uncovering problems? Those each words have a primary design. So, you know, you, you, if you drag your feet, how did it feel last time when you walked in late? How embarrassing was that? You know, that's, that's a time travel question. You're trying to gently put them in a moment in time. Humans hate to be embarrassed. If they're, if you're having trouble 
getting them to get dressed now, they're fully immersed in the moment, here and now. And they're not thinking about the embarrassment in the future. You know, they didn't like it when I came in late. It was, it was, it was ridicule. So the first step is to get them to think about how did it, how did it feel last time you were embarrassed? How much did you like that? How did it go over with whatever friends are important to you? You know, never mind how it went over with the teacher. How, how does it feel when you get embarrassed in front of your friends? That, you know, that's the first step. Get, get them thinking. How, you know, it's called in-depth thinking, slow thinking, Danny Kahneman would say. But that's in-depth thinking. And your job as a parent is to really get your kid's thinking ability as high as it could possibly be and kick them out of the nest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really want to talk to you about listening and the... The importance of listening, because I think we all think that to have a good negotiation, you have to be talking. But you um, right. you talk in the book about active listening. What is that? Yeah, you know what? And that, that word has become enough of a cliche that we, you know, we're cautious of the term because a lot of active listening is taught poorly. And we really want to, we, you know, we really want to get proactive, if you will, because you're listening for specific things. Humans are naturally negative. Uh, the majority of our thinking is negative because that's how we're wired. I mean, it's survival thinking is negative. When we were really being chased by saber-toothed tigers and or bears were in caves, you know, if the optimistic caveman said, yeah, I know last time Chris went in a dark cave, he never came out, but I'm optimistic. I'm going to go in this one. You know, those guys didn't survive. They got eaten. So we've inherited uh, survival thinking is negative. So if you know that, then you'll start out intentionally looking to deactivate the negative thinking, which is ridiculously simple, calling it out. The elephant in the room. You don't get rid of the elephant in the room by ignoring it or denying it's there. You diminish its impact by saying there's an elephant in the room. So I can make some pretty good predictions on what your negative thinking about me is going to be. If we're back in this, uh, deal where we're setting up a book tour. When we get ready to get into price, I'm going to say, look, I'm probably going to sound greedy. As opposed to your gut instinct would be, look, I don't want to seem like I'm greedy. The denial would to get people really good at this, what we coach them on in the back of your mind, what would you deny? What are you concerned that you need? I don't want you to think I'm greedy. I don't want you to think I'm hard to get along with. I don't want you to think I'm a diva. You know, whatever it might be. Everybody's got a gun instinct for stuff they, they know they should probably deny before the negotiation starts. Instead of denying it, you just straight out call it out. Look, I'm probably going to seem like a diva. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to seem like I can't make a decision. You know, if we and and if you were going to do business with me, I'd say like, look, I'm probably going to seem like I'm a weak leader, but I don't do anything without my team's full involvement. My team, I can't implement without my team. So for us to even proceed, I got to bring my whole team on board. We got to bring them all up to speed. Because somebody wants to get a quick decision out of me, might go like, well, aren't you the decision maker? Aren't you in charge? So I'm gonna I'm gonna preempt that. I'm gonna look. I got a team. I'm, pro I'm probably going to look like I'm not in charge. I'm probably going to look like I'm not the decision maker. Which makes you seem vulnerable, which is no bad thing. 
You know, there's a lot to that. Um, allowing yourself to appear vulnerable without being afraid of it. And I think that's what a lot of people like for me, vulnerability is like, Oh, I'm so, I'm sad. But that, you know, that's my misconstruing what that dynamic really is. I'm, I just need to, I need to be honest about my shortcomings. So you're not blindsided by them. And And I'm not scared to be honest. And that's a difficult bridge for people to cross until they see how effective it is. Until they see how, how it establishes relationships. But is it not a line of argument, Chris, that doing that, like you might sow a seed of doubt in that mind that might not have been there by calling it out? Everybody's afraid of that. A thousand percent. That is the biggest thing. And not only is that not true, but the opposite is so true that we actually use it as an inoculating technique. Cool, let's because um, let's say you got no reason to have a problem with me. Um, but I'm going to say, look, you're not going to like what I'm getting ready to say. It's going to sound really harsh. I'm a little nervous about asking this question to law enforcement professionals because it's more on the emotional side, but okay. I'm headed to a, a pretty aggressive custody negotiation. Okay. And um, so there's 17 years of hurt feelings on this. And so um, I'm really worried about having an emotional reaction and mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out how to get out of my head to mirror and label for that person um, and not get overwhelmed in that situation. And I wondered, I'm sure you don't start to cry in hostage negotiation <laughs> situations, but I'm just wondering if you have any advice for that. Yeah, sure. And I'd be happy, happy to add in some thoughts. And then what I'm actually going to do is, is throw it to a real hostage negotiator. I'm going okay. to ask for Troy's thoughts on this. Because for those of you who don't know, I was te- never technically in law enforcement. Okay. But I'm blessed to work with many, many uh, uh, legendary law enforcement professionals. And, and they're on the call with us. And Troy's one of them. And so he runs uh, a couple classes for us. One is a, we call caviar which is all about mindset going in and, and understanding what your triggers are a little bit and how to combat those. So I'll add a thought and then Troy, I'll throw it to you. My first thought is simply going to be mental preparation. Know that you are going to get triggered. Like no matter how hard I try, something's going to happen that's going to trigger me here. And if, if you're at least mentally prepared for knowing the punch is coming, you'll be re- that much more ready for it when it does come. And then secondarily, um, focusing on simply putting all your focus on the skills, which is not an easy thing to do, especially in a highly emotional state. It is not easy to do because we get so caught up in like, that's wrong. I need to tell you why it's wrong and I need to correct you, right? It's hard to fight that. But if we can switch mentally to just like, what skill do I need to drop in here to diffuse this? What skill do I need to drop in? Because, right, they got a lot of adrenaline running through their system right now, and I need to drop in dopamine because I need them positive and I got to get rid of this adrenaline stuff. What's the skill that I can use to actually trigger dopamine? That at least will will, um, uh, damper down 
the thoughts of like, you idiot, how could you? I can't believe you, son of a, right? And, and at least if we're focused on the skills. So those, those are the two things I would add quickly. Troy, what, what else would you add to this? Because this, this definitely falls in your wheelhouse of expertise. You definitely want to stay curious. If you're staying curious and asking, why are they saying these things? Why are they behaving this way? It's going to take away the emotional side of it for you mostly, where you're, you're searching for answers for them. What, what make them say that? What, what is making them behave that way? And for yourself, you want to get with a trusted colleague and vent before you go into the room or before you, before you actually go on the call or sit down with, across from that individual. You want to vent about all the things that you think are going to happen or going to come up in that room that's going to be an issue. But you want to find somebody that's going to be positive when they talk to you, because if you go in there and they've already fed you full of negative stuff, you're going to have a negative mindset going in. You want to have a positive mindset. And one of the things that Brandon said that is so important he, when he was talking about the person getting angry or getting upset, they can only do it for 45 seconds to a minute. If you can hold on for that ride, you're going to be okay. They wear themselves out. They don't realize how much stress and how fatiguing it becomes for them. So when they do that, the longer you can sustain your, your calm, you're going to wear them down. And they're finally going to just throw their hands up and like, Shh. but if you get angry and they get angry, they talk about the amygdala, you're going to have two dumb people in the room and you can't, and it don't work when you have that. Right. Do you have any suggestions? He'll have a lawyer in that situation as well as himself. And so I'm trying to figure out how to control both personalities because one's an accommodator and one's an analyst, I think. And I'm the lawyer's more unknown to me. So I'm trying to figure out how to control those personalities. When there's two personalities coming at me at the same time, how to control that scenario. Labels and mirrors. Okay. You just seems like both of y'all want to talk at the same time. It sounds like one has an agenda, the other one has an agenda. Thank you. That was excellent. Yeah, that's great, Troy. Great, great addition, man. You can, it's easy to see why we got him teaching this stuff on a regular basis. <laughs> All right, uh, let's see. There's something in the chat here from Jamie. All right, Melvin employee working outside of her scope. Doing the test only nurses allowed. Employee refused to own what she did. During step two grievance meeting, a union rep lost his point verbally attacking me, saying I was on a witch hunt. It was uh, racially motivated. All right, interesting. How do you come back from that? All right, excellent. So, um, Jamie, do you currently have a uh, um, a meeting set up to talk to this person, or do you have to construct that? Yeah, so the, the meetings are kind of constructed at this point. So the process is um, if a person gets a corrective action, um, they can grieve it. And there's a step one grievance in which the manager replies okay. after the meeting. There's a step two in which the HR rep replies. And then there's a step three in which a different uh, HR rep and a different union rep will look at the 
case like independently mm-hmm. and see if it's uh can be resolved otherwise it could possibly go to arbitration okay okay very good so you're getting ready, it sounds like you're getting ready to walk into step three yeah so i'm kind of uh my part in is is probably over at this point in terms of they uh the next step they may come to me to ask more questions uh, we investigated the case that sort of thing um but you know the the kind of through the entire meeting off the rails and it's like i tried to do the labeling and the mirroring and all that but i was kind of at a loss at that point as to where to go from there yeah that's it that's yeah this is a tough one and 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 one of the things that i i'm not a huge fan of with with any kind of bureaucracy type is uh the layers of red tape that they start putting between the two people that actually have the issue to separate them as opposed to allowing them to work it out similar to kind of what Catherine's talking about right she's there's more degrees of separation between her and her counterpart because of the situation and you're dealing with a similar thing and i worry about once it gets too far if there's there's so many degrees between us that it's it's almost impossible to come back yeah that's what it feels like yeah and 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 yeah yeah i would imagine that's how it feels so um the first thing that i would that i personally would try to do and 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 try i'll ask you to lean in on this as well if you got any additional thoughts um trying to get in a room one-on-one with this individual to actually talk them down and have a have a one-to-one interaction yeah. And and to the tune of either writing, um, you know, an email that's a short email. Like, is is it impossible for us to 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 sit down and actually uh, see if we can work this out? Or, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure the complete context. It's interesting how much of an effect handwritten letters have. Yeah. And this is at any at any at any place in business, right? Real estate, I think, is is probably the best at using it consistently. But when someone is looking at like a handwritten thing, it you know that the effort went into it. You know that you're not BSing. You didn't have some assistant type your email, like you actually sat down and wrote this out. And again, keeping it short and sweet, no right fights, right? No justifications all accusations audits and again you know is it is it at this point is it is it a complete impossibility for us to sit down and see if we can figure out how we got here yeah right and something to that effect and then when you sit down with the person and and especially when it comes to racially charged things and in this day and age right that's so sensitive and i would probably lead with that you know, yeah. to a certain degree, like you, you, based on how the world is spinning these days, you feel like you're probably climbing extra hurdles that are unnecessary. And then we have this issue with me where I seemingly make it worse for you. Right. And it's like, yeah, that's right. It is. The world is hard. And then you come along and you threw gasoline on a fire as a, as a way to kind of start that interaction with them. Yeah. And so that's 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 where I'd come from, Troy. Uh, what what's your, what additional thoughts or process suggestions would you give for Jamie on this one? Those, those were good comments, Brandon. Uh, Jamie, they they want to be heard. Yeah, you you know it, and I know it. They they want to be heard. Spend some time allowing them to vent to get it off of their chest, 
And then one of the things that have always been told, taught to me was, if you come to me with the problem, come to me with the solution. It may not be the best, but at least it's a starting point. So when you're talking to them, you want to you want to uh, phrase your 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 labels. And seems like you have a solution, may have a solution for how we can move forward. Things like that. Now they're part of the team. Y'all are working together. You're hearing them because the first thing they're going to say is you don't understand you. You know, it's, it's a, if it's a race thing, they're going to feel like no matter what you say, you don't understand. So get them to vent, get them to be part of the team to come up with help with the solution. May not be the best, but say, and, and, and you don't have to agree to it. You just say, hey, at least we're starting on the right foot. We're moving in the right direction. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a great point. It's something else, just one last thing I'll add to that. It just this piggybacking off of what Troy said in that we don't understand. Right. We're dealing with someone who's got something as as uh, volatile as some sort of a racial issue. What's interesting is, to Troy's point, a lot of times the understanding is really what it takes to solve it and letting them know no matter what I say, I'd imagine you feel like I don't understand. No matter what comes out of my mouth. I'd imagine it feels like I still don't get it or I haven't got my mind wrapped around the situation completely. Sometimes that's all it takes. Like, yeah, that's right. You don't get it. Now I'm happy to go back to work. Right. I'm yeah. happy. I'm happy to fall back in line. Okay. Yeah, so making part of the accusations on it is, is, is a good way to drop it in too. But great question. What do you got for us? Thanks. Um, <clears throat> I'm curious if you can, shed some insight on how to deal with people who seem to be operating against their own best interest? Great question. Oh, I like that question a lot. All right, so first of all, I would, uh, as, as a preparation for dealing with this person, I'd probably want to have an iMessage ready because that could easily be dropped into an iMessage because it seems like you're operating against your own self-interest. Right. When you state behavior, exhibit whatever behavior, I feel like we're spinning our wheels. I feel like we're not getting anywhere. I feel like um, I'm not giving you the support that you actually need because it seems like you're working against your own self-interest. Right. So I would I would construct an iMessage like that, have it ready to go lead in with an, with an accusations audit, or if there's a lot of tension against you personally, the old Tommy Corgan, no oriented question, have, have, have I wronged you in some way? It seems like I put you in a bad spot. Have I wronged you in some way? Yes, you have, Josh, and these are the things. And whatever they state, right, you're gonna wanna label and mirror, and that may in fact solve the problem. Let's say they clam up and they don't say anything, right? Then the, all right, no, no, you haven't, Josh. Okay, well, the following is going to be really tough to hear, and it's going to make me sound like I'm attacking you. When you X, I feel X, because it seems like you're working against yourself, right? And now, now you're into the conversation. 
but I think I think that's a great question, and and, and leading in in that way is is at least gonna you're gonna gain some ground. Thank you. Yeah, man. Great, great. Uh, and then Brandon, what do you what do you got for us, man? Uh, so I have less of a question and more of just a, a I guess, comment or observation for like uh, the Catherine and Jamie's um, situations. And sure, if you got uh, some feel thoughts, free to please. <clears throat> yeah, feel free to contextualize this either Brandon or Troy. But in you know, I went through <clears throat> several years of therapy where like it one of the key factors of these techniques being successful is this mindset thing that they've been talking about. And one of those one of those things is like the concept of boundaries, right? Especially when you're very close to somebody and they're like, you're being an asshole. And you're like, oh my God, am I? Is it really me? Like, and, and you lose the objectivity that's like, no, no, no. You might be, but that's not the relevant part. The relevant part is like, this is their thought. This is what they think, right? And part of achieving the tactical empathy, in my opinion, is staying in that space of, what is this person thinking? Not what are they claiming? Not are their claims true, per se, but like, is like, how can I demonstrate to them that um, I, I, I understand what they're saying? Not that I agree with it. And this is where the therapy came in, because I really had a problem for myself where people would make claims and I'd be like, I, I would lose my I would lose my cool because I'd just assume that their claim had to be true. But if you can maintain that distance and maintain that internal barrier, it can make application of these techniques much more consistent, you know? So that's just my two cents. Yeah, I think, I, actually, I think that's a great point. I'm glad you added that in because I, I think that very much speaks to something we looked at uh, in class one when I wasn't with you guys and we just touched on it real quick last class. The, the levels of listening, right? Kind of our listening stairway. And the top level is when you can connect what they say to a life narrative, to a deep rooted motivation or experience, right? When you can, we can start to wrap our mind around how what they said relates directly to those things, then we're, we're thinking at a deeper level, right? We're digging deep, we're looking for the underlying dynamics to your point. So. Yeah, very much a mindset shift. And, and going back to something Catherine said earlier in regards to triggers, something that's helped me greatly, and I've seen it help others greatly, is, you know, we talk a lot about go-tos in general, right? I have a list of go-to labels. I have a list of go-to oriented questions. Well, the other thing that's really helpful is if you have a go-to skill that you always use when you feel yourself heating up. For me personally, it's labels. You know, I, I'm, I'm under, of the mindset I can label my way into or out of anything, right? Just by making a solid verbal observation. There's a, another friend and, and uh, we've done some work with, um, her name is, oh, her name escapes me at the moment. She, she works for uh, Compass Realty down in, in the Atlanta area and, and is very successful. When she feels herself getting triggered, she summarizes. Like that's her instant thing. Like, okay, I'm getting triggered, which means we're off kilter and I need to get a that's right from my counterpart. And she instantly goes into summary whenever she feels herself heating up. Chris Voss, right? The famous author, his thing is calibrated questions. That's where he goes when he feels himself getting heated up. So 
some of it is just knowing which skill you feel most comfortable with and then making that your go-to answer when we feel ourselves getting triggered that's a that's a that's a big first step so yeah i'm, I'm glad you added that brandon i mean obviously we, we are huge components of understanding is the foundation to trust respect influence likability pretty much every road we want to access when it comes to negotiation it all starts with the with the show and understanding so it's, that's a great point brandon great point as reminders be very aware of your tone the most well executed skill delivered with poor tone I, I, I don't know, Sandy, if you could, if you, if you were to put a percentage on it, and I realize I'm, I'm, uh, I'm dropping, you know, dropping this on your head. I didn't prepare you for it. I'm, I'm, I'm catching you off guard. If you were going to put a percentage to it about how much a well-executed skill would be negatively affected by poor tone of voice, if you're just going to guess, right? Not something I'm necessarily going to hold you to, but I know you have a great feel for this stuff with the background that you have as a crisis negotiator, what, what would you say? Well, to me, tone is the most important thing. So if your tone is wrong, no matter what you're saying, the person is gonna take it the way they perceive it. So you you've lost complete control if your tone is bad. So I would say it's up there really high, really high, 90%, if not higher. Tone is yeah. extremely important. Yeah, ninety percent. Wow, that's 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 a pretty big percentage. So you're only you're only ten percent effective if the tone of voice doesn't come with it. That's, that's pretty, just amazing. That's, that's it could simple. be higher. Tone is important. Tone, tone, tone means everything. Tone is the first thing that someone notices about you. So if your tone is um, comes across as negative, the rest of your interaction, unless you can fix that tone right away, is going to remain negative. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, that's a great point. And negative covers, it's such a broad stroke of the brush, right? Because negative could be you come off as arrogant or you come off as, right? And we, I think we've all done this at certain times where we deliver things with a tone of voice that says, I think that you're stupid or I think that, you know, your opinion holds no water. And all of that comes across in our tone and what perceived intention might be from the other side. Something that always blew my mind. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Derek Gaunt. Um, and I may have mentioned this last time, and this is just a reiteration, but it really blows me away. One of the things he told me early on was when he was in crisis negotiation and he had to choose to put some money on the phone. And if his choices were somebody that was fully versed in the skills and understood all of the intricacies inside and out of all the skills very well versed but their tone of voice was really bad and then the other choice was somebody that doesn't really know the skills at all and still has a lot to learn however this person has a fantastic tone of voice like if he had to choose between those two people what would he choose and to my surprise, he said he'd always choose the person with the tone of voice. Because if their tone of voice is extremely accurate and on point and executed well, he knew that in a crisis negotiation scenario, they would always come to resolution. It might take a while, but the chances of them coming to resolution were almost, you know, they're up there at 94% close rate. 
And then the person that had great skills, but their tone was always off, there's a really good chance things are going to go bad. And I, I always thought that was a really interesting perspective. How can you be so good at the skills and then a skill expert doesn't want to use you just simply because of the tone of voice? And I always thought that was amazing. So things to keep in mind. We have a question that just came up in the chat. It ah, says, yes, how, how do you evaluate your own tone? That's a great question. And so a few things, a couple of them will be reiterations from last time. The first part is always assume that you have something to learn when you go into a negotiation. A lot of us get off point because we assume we're going in because we got to educate the other side. We got to lay out the data, facts, justifications. We need them to understand, so we have to explain it to them. And our intention is to go in to teach and inform and educate. And it actually needs to be switched to we go in knowing that we have things to learn and that's why we're at the table. And so that's the first part because that mindset leads to genuine curiosity. If we stay in a mindset of genuinely curious, it'll come across in our tone. You can hear the question mark at the end. And so that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is we all have our triggers in the moment. We all know when we feel ourselves getting cranked up could be for any number of reasons. When you feel that coming on, that should be a trigger for yourself internally that you just need to go ahead and switch into the late night FM DJ voice. When you feel that bubbling up inside of you, just focus on slowing down your cadence and that'll help you keep in control that in itself. And then the third part, and we're kind of three and four combined, I guess. First of all is awareness, right? The first part to solving any problem is being aware of the problem. And then another piece of this is we as human beings, since we're emotional creatures, we think emotionally, we make decisions emotionally. We also have a tendency to carry emotional baggage. And we carry emotional baggage from one conversation to another. And once we realize that's what we're doing, right? The awareness, we can, we can help stop it. And so quick example of that is right before I got on this phone call, I got a personal uh, call on my cell phone about five minutes before we started that was very intense and intense because there's some things that I didn't follow up on in regards to this uh, rental that I have and the guy who runs the rental place is really likes me and has been bending over backwards to cut me breaks. And now he's getting browbeaten by his superiors because I haven't dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. And he's allowed me to do not have to do so because he likes me and we're getting along well. And so he calls me up clearly under a lot of pressure. And so trying to shake myself of having that weighing on my mind while I'm working on this call with you all was something that I had to drop that emotional baggage, the intensity, and I had to do it in about two minutes before I got on the phone with you. We do that to ourselves. We'll have a conversation with our boss, with our, with our spouse, 
with another employee or a previous conversation with the counterpart we're going to be faced with. And we carry emotional baggage into that conversation from a previous interaction. That stuff will hurt our tone of voice. Another example, recently, Chris and I were teaching a class. Um, I'm a new father. Uh, thanks for those, right? I hear the congratulations mentally already on the other side. Appreciate it. But my point is, just got done dealing with the wife and the baby, very aggravated, feeling very intense, came on the teaching call with Chris for one of our corporate clients, and I'm naturally assertive. I naturally sound aggressive, and because that emotional baggage was on me, I'm upset with the argument I have with my wife, I'm upset that the baby's not sleeping and is crying, and I come on and I'm intense. And I'm on the call and I'm talking to people like this. You need to do that. Make sure that you do these things. And Chris actually sends me a text message and says, I know you're not doing it on purpose. You sound like you're screaming at the group. And that was me carrying my own emotional baggage in and not being aware of it. And with the greatest intentions of helping people reach the next level and become the greatest negotiators they could be, I sounded like a complete jerk that was browbeating them because I was carrying something that had nothing to do with them into the conversation. And so those are really kind of the four aspects of it. But the most important is if we stay curious, it's hard to be curious and angry at the same time. And then, you know, assuming we have something to learn, we'll lead that way. And when we hit our triggers, downshift, hard downshift into the late night FM DJ voice will keep us in line. And it also calm the other side down. It's hard to yell at a voice that's very calm, steadfast, and unshaking. I did, I did start with an accusation on it. I think it actually kind of caught him a little off guard because I think he was prepared for a very financial-driven conversation rather than a actually starting with the intention of the program and our commitment together to make some of these things work. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And in getting through that, um, I didn't use really as many mirrors as I used silence. And he filled in blanks for information that was not shared in the original meeting. Specifically, um, two things came out uh, that I was not aware of because we had changed um, to pre-billing some things. And again, I'm trying not to go too far into the details to bore, but there was a change where we pre-built some stuff and some stuff was coming in as actuals. They they were having a concern that we were cross-charging some things and he just would never have surfaced that information for me to be able to show him the clarity of why that's actually not the case. You know, so there, it was interesting from that perspective, more information being shared as well as um, he also shared, you know, some questions around what other folks in the program, what they're doing, what their capacity is, how they fit in, which again, was not being surfaced in the original conversation. So um, yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the, the audit opened them up to be much more personal. Um, and then the, the, actually the silence seemed to be the, the one that was really getting him to fill in some blanks and share a lot more than previously. Trying to figure out which skill is appropriate. That's going to be a constant struggle for you guys. And when it's, it's a good struggle to have because you've got, you've got options. But what we're trying to accomplish is being able to play off of whatever we're given from the other side. 
And you, you honestly do get to pick and choose whatever you want to use. You know whether or not if there's a nugget of, of information that needs to be fleshed out within a previous statement. Now you just got to make up your mind. I know I want to go after that. How do I want to do it? And you pick and choose what you think is going to work best for you. And so if you're punctuating the conversation with dynamic silence as opposed to going overboard uh, with the use of mirrors or any other skill, that's okay. Dynamic silence is the one skill that most people fail to use. We fail to keep our mouths shut. So the fact that you relied on that heavily is it, kudos to you. But I just wanted to highlight the fact that you guys are the ultimate arbiters to, as to what skills you use and how often you use it. My only mandate, if there is one for you, is to stay conversational. Um, I, I got a report back this morning where, as I'm reading the conversation as they laid it out, I too got the sense that they were going overboard on the labels. And my, my, my instruction to them was just don't ever forget, you have to stay conversational. Go back to what I talked about. The conversation is a soup or a stew, black swan skills. That's the seasoning. What is your favorite seasoning? Is it salt? Is it pepper? Is it paprika? Is it basil? I don't know. But regardless of whatever your favorite seasoning is, I guarantee you, you don't use too much of it in any one meal or else you'll ruin the meal. Same thing with the, with the skill set. Chris, can you explain what tactical empathy is and why it's crucial to not only use in negotiations, but everyday conversations to uncover black swans? Yeah, you know, and, and, and I want to dive in a little bit on both of these words uh, because some of the stuff that I've put out on uh, Instagram recently, um, you know, people react to both tactical and empathy in different ways. They react to tactical. Some people react as if it's a negative thing. And some people react to empathy as if it's, you know, positive thing in terms of sympathy, compassion, agreement. And, and both are really actually neutral words. Uh, like a knife is a neutral tool in one person's hand. It's an instrument of death in a surgeon's hand. It's an instrument of life. It's a tool. Any given tool uh, is not in and of itself either good or bad. Uh, it can lead to very good things or even occasionally bad things. Now, empathy is a crazy word. My understanding in the etymology those of you that are wordsmiths always get confused between etymology and entomology. I think etymology is origin and entomology is a study of insects. Easy to get those two confused. But the origin of empathy is that it was originally an interpretation from a German word about feeling art. Um, and it's really about trying to get and understand just develop an understanding of the feelings that are being projected by the other side, the feelings and perspectives. So really a neutral thing. Like you might react to a work of art and it might touch you, but you're trying to figure out what feelings are coming off of it. And then as we move forward through time, you know, empathy gets, uh, you know, uh, uh, interpreted in different ways along the way. 
But what I learned mostly from was a guy named Carl Rogers, American psychologist that really, again, used empathy just to hear people out, find out where they're coming from. And Rogers used a phrase, if you could summarize their thoughts and feelings completely, not your thoughts and feelings, but their thoughts and feelings completely, and not whether or not you agree or whether or not you disagree, but just what's coming off of them, their attitude. And that was kind of what I learned about empathy from suicide hotline days back in the 19 ever before the Internet, even before cell phones. And then I ran across Bob Manukin's book, uh, you know, in the early part of this century, Beyond Winning. And Bob Manukin is a chair, uh, was the chair of on negotiation in charge of the program on negotiation at Harvard. And his book, Beyond Winning, I highly recommend chapter two in that book, best, best chapter on empathy I've ever read. And what we tell everybody that's a black swan, read and absorb and into your DNA this chapter. Because Manukin said empathy is not agreement. It's not even necessarily liking the other side. You draw this fine line with empathy, then it becomes a completely limitless skill, unlimited skill. It requires no common ground. It requires no agreement. You know, empathy is about the transmission of information. Stephen Kotler would say that. Kotler is the author of a number of books on flow. Interesting cat. One of the more interesting dudes I've ever met. But it's about the transmission of information. Compassion is a reaction to that information. Sympathy is a reaction to that information. Empathy is a compassionate thing to do, but it's not necessarily compassion. So it's just about getting where the other side is coming from so fully and so completely that they say that's right. That's what we talk about. The black swan method is about triggering that's right's moments from the other side. Now, what good does that do you? This is getting a good five-star that's right out of somebody is equivalent of sprinkling fairy dust on them and changing their mind because a good solid that's right triggers oxytocin. Oxytocin is the bonding drug. Oxytocin is what's behind all these mystical experiences in the past such as the Stockholm Syndrome. If you uh, ever heard of the Stockholm Syndrome, came from a, uh, a siege in a bank in Stockholm, Sweden, like in the 1970s. And the hostages that came out all refused to testify against their captors. And they were, the world was shocked that the hostages had so bonded to their captors. And in fact... One of the reasons why it's called the Stockholm Syndrome instead of Brooklyn Syndrome, Brooklyn, as in the movie Dog Day Afternoon, was during the captivity, during the siege, there were indicators that some of the female hostages actually had sex with their captors. And the world was going like, what in the world is going on? But the oxytocin is the bonding drug. Oxytocin is what mothers feel when their children are born and they are bonded to the child. Oxytocin is this crazy one-way drug because when a newborn baby is born, 
you know, over the year it attaches to the mother or the parent by being held, by being nurtured. But the mother, the instant and the father, because I bonded to my son that moment he was born. You know, we lay eyes on our children and we're done. I can remember when I laid eyes on my son, Brandon Voss, unofficial co-author of Never Split the Difference. Like I was done the moment I saw him. That was oxytocin. Now, on his end, you know, he a little kid, fresh in the world, blinking, looking at me. And he's like, you know, that guy looks kind of interesting. He's got kind of a dopey look on his face. He looks like he might be nice. But the point is, oxytocin is this one-way bonding. What do you do when you get a that's right out of somebody in a negotiation? They bond with you. They bond with you in a very big way. And this oxytocin bond is massive. And that's what empathy is about, triggering an oxytocin bond from the other side to you. Now, we threw the word tactical in, again, as a neutral term. Why did we throw that in? To make empathy much more of a neutral word, a neutral tool that anybody can use. I had to use it as a hostage negotiator. You guys have me out there negotiating against Al-Qaeda. Do you want me to be sympathy with Al-Qaeda in order to save your life? No, you want me to get the dude from Al-Qaeda to bond with me so I can get him to do what I want. And it's a mercenary's tool. And tactical is when we begin to discover neuroscience and we find out about things like oxytocin. We find out about things about dopamine, chemical reactions. It's a hard science. Neuroscience is a hard science. Psychology is a soft science. You know, and as a hostage negotiator or even a business negotiator, you find limited use for psychology. But neuroscience is really hard stuff. For example, the neuroscience experiment has been done over and over and over again. Triggering on a negative emotion in somebody's brain. Neuroscience has mapped out what we call the limbic system in your brain. And most people have heard of something called the amygdala. Everybody, you know, people have heard the amygdala hijack. Well, the amygdala is this almond-sized organ in the center of your brain that you're emotional, it's like the command post, if you will, for your emotions as they run through your brain. Now, neuroscientists have mapped the amygdala and know that 75% of the real estate in the amygdala is dedicated to negative thoughts. 75% to negative thoughts. Half, one entire half, and then 25% of the other half, 75% of the real estate. So they put people in fMRIs. Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging Device so they can watch the electricity go through a person's brain. And then they showed them a picture. And the picture was designed to induce negative thoughts. And that might be a puppy in the rain. You know, who knows? A baby seal on a beach. A little old lady that was homeless. But whatever. It was pictures that would induce negative thoughts. They show them the picture and they watched the 75% of the amygdala that's negative, light up. See the electrical activity go through it. And then they simply say, what are you feeling? Labeling, the Black Swan Method's tool of labeling. And they have the person self-label, which is a side note. This means you can negotiate with yourself with this method. And each time the person labeled the negative emotion, each time, not half the time, 
every time the electrical activity in the negative part of the amygdala diminished every single time labeling works every single time now the critical aspect of this tactical application of this neuroscience knowledge to empathy is the degree of impact wasn't always the same maybe it diminished it a little bit maybe it diminished it a lot and so when we're teaching you the black swan method and we have you employ something called the accusations audit which is a series of calling out the negatives in advance the tactical application of emotional intelligence if the amygdala is 75 percent negative you need to lead by deactivating the negatives every time well when don't you deactivate the negatives it works only with human beings who are alive lead by deactivating the negatives we tell people to do a negative assessment the accusations audit call them out in advance and we say to them all right so you did your negative labels the series of labels and they stared at you what does that mean and most people will say like ah it didn't work ah, i'm on the wrong track now if you get no reaction from the other side to the labeling of a negative that means it worked you just need more you're on track you've just got more to go through so Shay, you asked me what is tactical empathy it's us taking empathy as a demonstration of understanding and adding in what we know to be true from neuroscience to accelerate the process so you get your deals faster how much faster do you get your deals the black swan group was in an important conversation two weeks ago we used tactical empathy we scheduled the call for 60 minutes we were done in 17. we were prepared for it to take 60 minutes to get to where we wanted to go and we got there in 17 minutes that's how it accelerates things that's how you put time back in your life that's how you give yourself more time to enjoy life that much more and in this negotiation when we were done everybody was in a good mood and that's what you want to strive for